Yeah, I think we're at a point in time where there's some people who are like crypto and the decentralized technology stuff is like inevitable at this point. And instead of not being part of it, I'd rather get my foot in the door now. And then there are some people, which I probably fall more into this category, where it's like, I'm just going to wait and see how this pans out. I think I could kind of tell what category everyone else hears <laughs> is in based on the conversations we've had so far. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast, a place to talk all things software and technology. I am Ben Popper, the Director of Content here at Stack Overflow, and I am joined today, as I often am, by my wonderful co-hosts, Cassidy Williams, Sierra Ford, and Ryan Donovan. Hey, everybody. Hi. Hey, Ben. So, Ryan, you sent a fun link over this morning. It's not satire, but it feels that way. You want to tee this one up? So, somewhere on my Twitter feed, I saw this video about pitching this, this place called Cryptoland, which is apparently a island for crypto coin and blockchain projects. Crypto enthusiasts. Yeah. The video just feels like every satire of crypto bros ever. It feels like Fire Festival for crypt- oh, crypto. Oh, gosh. Yeah. What is Fire Festival? Oh, oh you're in let's for get into that. <laughs> you're in for a treat. Fire Festival, just as a quick aside, was supposed to be this gigantic music island festival and tons and tons of influencers were going to go it was super super hyped up and then turns out the whole thing was a scam and so when all the people got there you saw like these crappy sandwiches that were like basically a couple pieces of white bread and nothing else and then five tents no porta potties no porta potties <laughs> like it that was just it and so all of these people were just scammed and spent all this money to go to this place that yeah. had nothing. They also made yeah. an amazing like promo video. They got all these influencers to buy in and then they show up to this island. I think that they were stranded there, like the planes left or something. And then it was like three days from hell, all of these like fancy influencers. I think Ja, ja Rule was ja the, Rule was one of the, the spokesmen. Face of it. Yeah. It was fun. Was there a documentary on this or there's something? There's not one, but two documentaries. Yeah. I know yeah. someone who was in the documentary. Oh, cool. Yeah. Oh, wow. Did they have a good time? You know, they were the kind of person who would get a ticket to Fire Festival. And I'll leave it at that. Right, exactly. Does anybody here remember Seasteaders or do you know what I'm talking about? It was like this oh, tech yeah, yeah. thing on a boat. When I first started at the New York Observer in like 2010, 2010 to 2012, that was a thing, kind of like the Crypto Bro Island. It'd be like, if you're a cool person, you bought a ticket, we all get on this boat, there's tons of talks, people form startups, we have parties, we stop off at an island. It was sort of like... We're in international waters, so rules do not apply. Yeah, it's like Soho House at Sea for tech. And it's kind of cringy, but also like people who went had a great time. So, you know, good on them. Oh, so that one wasn't a scam then? No, that one wasn't a scam. I did do something like this at one point. I'm going to be as vague as possible because it is a program that still (laughs) exists. But there was a point (laughs) where I went on one of these retreat things where it was a bunch of tech people who go to some beautiful place. And I thought it was going to be like a conference with a bunch of talks and I don't know, programming, but it was truly just tech people nearby each other where that, that was it. And I was just like, do we just like float around near each other? And it, it was just like, Oh, it's about the connection. 
It's about being around yeah. like-minded individuals, it's creating. Just absorb and the I was like, vibes. we're not creating anything. We're just sitting here. <laughs> um, <laughs> so anyway, I can't speak highly of programs like that myself personally. So I guess my only thing, Ryan, is like this video is super cringy and the whole idea of like going to a private island in order to do something that also is all about being decentralized and open, like buying a one of 60 house houses in the hills, you know, is very elitist and sort of the opposite of inclusive. But the other thing I will say about this is that it's fun. It's very fun to point fingers at the crypto bros and at the crypto and NFT community and just, on the other hand, people have been doing that since 2010 and other people have been making millions of dollars. So yeah. like, if I, you know, if I was in their shoes where I'd just been a, a crypto bull since the beginning, you know, I'd be laughing at me. Like, I really feel crappy for having had multiple opportunities to get on this train and turn them all down. You know, like makes me feel like a schmuck. They got their money. Not going to argue with yeah. that. But I think what is cringiest about this is that it feels like like a scam and it feels like hucksters jumping on crypto. And, and I think crypto and blockchain have sort of suffered in reputation from having a lot of, let's say, you know, less than reputable things attached to them. And this just feels like, why do you need to go to this island in Fiji to party and make crypto blockchain stuff with this video where all the cars are like to the moon. Oh gosh. It feels like they're not taking it seriously. So why should we? But yeah, but a part, part of it is like the meme humor, like Dogecoin was a joke, but some people became millionaires. Shiba was another joke and some people became, you know, like part of it is like you live in the culture of memes and, and not taking things seriously is like your whole affect. But at the same time, like maybe you did build something that I don't know. Someone mentioned that like crypto and the like, DeFi community kind of has suffered in reputation. And I kind of feel like stuff like this makes it a little worse, especially from when you're like on the outside looking in when you're not actually part of the like code crypto world or whatever. We yeah. just discussed like several instances where retreats like this were kind of like either weird or actual scams. So when you're like not a crypto person and you see something like this, you're like, here they go again. <laughs> They're at it again with the with the weird scammy stuff so and to be fair i think you know early in the dot-com blowout like there's plenty of companies with serious business proposals who had marketing that was full of the memes of the time that was very hard to take seriously you know there were things that came out of that but there were a lot of things that blew up in the you know early 2000s a lot of people lost their shirts yeah i think we're at a point in time where there's some people who are like crypto and the decentralized technology stuff is like inevitable at this point. And instead of not being part of it, I'd rather get my foot in the door now. And then there are some people, which I probably fall more into this category, where it's like, I'm just going to wait and see how this pans out. I think I could kind of tell what category everyone else hears <laughs> is in based on the conversations we've had so far. It's tough because there is, there is so much money in it. It would be great to not have to worry about my mortgage or paying certain bills and stuff. That would be amazing. But at the same time, I tried out Ethereum and I was just like, oh, maybe this whole Web3 thing is interesting. And then I realized scanning a QR code cost me $150 because I didn't understand how gas fees worked. Like, <laughs> I did come across like a situation where like I was like, okay, I see the validity of crypto. Like that was the probably only time where I was legitimately like, okay, I really get it. Aside from like potentially making a lot of money, a person on Twitter 
was talking about how they live in a country in Asia. I'm, I'm going to say it's China. And they have like a YouTube channel and everything like that. But because of border stuff, currency, all that kind of thing. And also for some reason, like certain policies with companies like PayPal and Patreon, the only way that she could get money from people to like support her work was through crypto. Like there are certain legitimate situations where like the decentralized part of crypto helps people who are in situations where like currency or these companies that for us come naturally. Like if I want to send somebody money, I'm just like, okay, what's your PayPal? What's your cash app? Whatever. That's not a possibility in every country, especially when you're doing like a cross border transaction type stuff. So in that situation, I was like, okay, I really get why crypto can be important for some people because that's the only way she's going to get support financially from people who consume her content. So that like, I was like, okay, I get it. I was just going to say, I think with kind of authoritarian and or failing states, having that currency that operates on a global scale is is valuable. Like I heard a story about Zimbabwe was having a million percent inflation, something ridiculous. So there were all these ATMs that operated in Bitcoin. So they could have a stable currency to operate trades in. And, you know, of course, people were like, let's fly down there. Let's transfer a lot of money into Bitcoin because this is a not only is it a way for these people to survive, it is a way for us to make money too. We heard a good story on the episode we did with that journalist, Ethan Liu, which may be apocryphal, but I've, I've heard it you know, told in a bunch of different ways about a woman who was in Afghanistan during a period where women started going to school and were getting technical education. And she bought a few Bitcoins as like, you know, to check it out, to learn about it. And then when ISIS arrived, her family had to flee. They didn't have time to take their like possessions or whatever. She ended up essentially as like a refugee. She got on a boat and she ended up in Europe and she had memorized her, you know, 16 digit alphanumeric. And so she brought essentially like $40,000 with her in her, you know, Bitcoin wallet in her head. And that was like pretty life changing, you know, when you arrive in a new place. So in that sense, if you can step outside of the financial system and preserve, you know, wealth or move wealth in some way, I guess like the essence of it is the internet is super interesting because nobody owns it. And in China, people can block it. There's ways around it, but you can move information anywhere and nobody can shut it down globally. And crypto is the same thing, but for money, which which is powerful, you know, the the issue is right. Like what are we building on top of that these days? It's mostly like trading platforms for speculative investment and art, which is good. Art is good, but the art has quickly become like a speculative investment or like an elitist club which is too yeah. bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I'm not so sold on NFTs. Like, I still haven't found a, a situation where I was like, okay, I understand why this is a thing and I feel like it's semi-justified. But I've heard some situations in which, like, artists who are deceased or who didn't consent to their art being sold as NFTs, their art is being sold yeah. as NFTs. And, like, they somehow find out. I don't even know how they become aware of it, but some of these platforms that let you trade the NFTs won't like, I guess the term should be invalidate the the NFT or whatever. Right. Well, they can't really. Yeah, this happened recently. Like, some Somebody lost their apes, like two, $2 million worth of apes, this art dealer. And he was very upset. And he you know, asked the community for help. And OpenSea stopped trading his NFTs on OpenSea. And everyone started shouting, well, this is crazy. It's supposed to be decentralized. Now you're taking control. But essentially what OpenSea was doing was just saying, you you know, you can still trade it on any blockchain anywhere. You just can't use our platform to do this for now. 
And in the end, I think the buyers, people who had bought them from the thief ended up giving a few of them back or whatever. But it is funny because it's supposed to be open. But like you're saying, it ends up coming back to issues of like authenticity and ownership that, you know, can be very, they're problematic. Like that's, yeah. that's what happens with these NFTs. Like you were saying, people will tell somebody, hey, I saw somebody selling your picture for $5,000 saying it was theirs, you know, and then they tell that person, the artist had no idea. And so like, that's why then you, you end up going back to a central authority. You're like, well, if this auction house says this NFT really belongs to this artist and I trust this auction house then I will buy it. And it's like, oh, well, you just super centralize things again. You know, like it's all about trusting an entity and not the network. Yeah. There was a real life version of this a while back, this model on Instagram. And I think her name is Emily something. Emily Rajowski. Yeah. Yeah. Some artist painted an Instagram photo of her with like the Instagram interface around it. And it sold for you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And she had to sue to be like, that's my image. Yeah, I, I know um, someone on Twitter again, they kind of described, especially the NFT ecosystem is more so being like unregulated, which I feel like is a better way to describe it maybe than decentralized because mm. that's how it feels, especially when you see situations where like, I'm an artist and I put my art out on the internet, whether it be like on Instagram, whatever. And someone took a screenshot and decided to sell that as an NFT and I didn't allow that. But now how am I supposed to like remove whatever, however you're supposed to like fix those kind of situations. And there are no like rules that say that's not allowed. Like there's nothing you can really fall back on to be like, this is illegal, but is it? Because there are, there's very little regulation with it. I do see, I mean, I don't know. Tell me if you all think this is true. I do see in a bunch of projects, people essentially deciding that to bring digital artists they love in as the creators and those people get to create a lot of work and people spend a lot of money and feel happy to own the work and so in that sense it does empower digital artists Mm -hmm. maybe in a way that was more difficult for them before because people you know naturally were sort of like if i buy a piece of digital art what does that get me like i could just copy it but people within the nft community do care and that is driving a lot of money to artists which i guess is a good thing I sound like such a contrarian here, and I promise this is not <laughs> like what I want. Makes for good TV. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the one thing I like about NFTs is that it is allowing artists to get some income. But I kind of cringe a little bit when people like, I guess I'll say pretend like I buy NFTs because I want to support artists when it's like this artist has been selling their art digitally and otherwise for years and has been struggling. But now that like NFTs are mutually beneficial, I guess, because you can potentially make a huge profit off of them. Now people are like, oh, artists, like how, how are you doing? Let me like look at your work now, you know? <laughs> yeah. I saw a really yeah. interesting debate about the whole decentralization of, of all of this stuff where people were saying, should OpenSea exist? Should it not exist? Because it kind of centralizes what should be decentralized. And the hot take was, well, Git was decentralized and then GitHub made it not hot take. I know hot take, take, right? And people were just like, and you know that isn't necessarily bad, but it did change things, and and like it did maintain some elements of its decentralized nature. But then it also was centralized because there was suddenly a, a marketplace for it, and people had a hub of where to go and and knew what to do. And then some people were saying, this is actually why I refused to use GitHub for years because I I just thought it it was against the very nature of why git existed 
It was interesting to see this conversation. I don't know if I have any sides in it or anything, but right. but I, I mean, this is kind of the eternal like push and pull in technology. Is like the internet is distributed, but most people find it easier to use when it's Facebook and now it's centralized, or like web yeah. browsers are open, but most people find it easier to use these ones built by huge companies. You know, like mm, yeah. decentralization is fascinating and provides this underpinning that's really powerful. But then people really want. Yeah, some you have to build an interface on top of that, essentially. Right. I mean, you need somebody to adjudicate uh, conflicts, right? Somebody, if you have a conflict with somebody else, they're stealing your stuff. Somebody has to say, "Yeah, that's theft. Uh, here's the penalties." And that's what's so otherwise, wild, yeah, about like the open trading platforms. And I we had these people on there talking about how it's a really adversarial environment. You're writing smart contracts that say, "Hey, you can use an API and talk to me, and I can talk to you. This is my wallet. Any wallet can talk to it." And we're all talking to the blockchain and you, you screw up your code and your smart tra- contract and somebody else writes smarter code. They just take a hundred million out of your account and they've done nothing wrong. Like they followed all the rules. They were just better. You know, they were just clever. It seems like when it's truly decentralized, people get can get kind of scammed. Yeah. <laughs> but then if a centralized source of power steps into play, say OpenSea, and they decide we're going to set rules where like you can't post or post, you can't share someone else's work as an NFT that is no longer decentralized. So then if it's not decentralized anymore, what's the benefit of all of this? Or am I, well, is part of it like centralized, that, but yeah. essentially under yeah. the hood it's not? Yeah, like, it's it's yeah, like it's a hybrid explain. model of centralization and decentralization. I, I think ultimately people like organization in general. Right. Like, yeah. like it's fun to have freedom, but if there's guardrails, then there's like a, a direction to move in, which is why I prefer conferences instead of random gatherings of tech people where you sit around <laughs> and look at each other. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And like, yeah, like OpenSea might decide, hey, you know, because we know these NFTs were stolen, we're not going to let you trade them on our platform. But there's 50 other platforms you could use, Siora, or literally just a wallet to wallet transfer to move those NFTs. Like they can't stop the decentralized system from working in the background, they can only say, we're not going to process these transactions because we know that, you know, these things were stolen. I didn't even think of it as being a hybrid situation. I I think our last podcast episode had me kind of like thinking about how, you know, these big tech companies kind of use our data and our information and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And I could see potentially like in a tech utopia, how like <laughs> <laughs> big companies providing like the user interface where we do stuff and they set certain rules about like what we can and cannot do on their platform. But somehow our actual data and information is still relatively decentralized, if that makes sense. Like I have ownership over what's mine and I decide what can be, can and cannot be done with it. But then right. when I think about that, I'm like, okay, how do the the big companies or companies period make a, a profit if they can't do anything with your data? I mean, one thing, you know, that is, I think kind of retro, you know, and talking about the pendulum swing of like centralized to decentralized is like in the Ethereum world, everybody holds their own wallet and nobody else has the keys. Sometimes there's a multi-sig environment where you hold something with, you know, a couple of other people, but I hold my money there or my art there. And I, you know, conceivably I could hold my data there and I would only give my data to a website I visit that runs on the Ethereum blockchain if I decide to. And so that goes back to like a different vision of the web, you know, where, every person essentially was more the custodian of their own information and money and, right. you know, imagery. Everybody runs their own Everybody server. runs their own server, exactly. So, like, that's kind of, like, the blockchain, in essence, is acting as, like, a centralized server. You can 
pass information there through smart contracts. It's validated by a decentralized network of you know trustless nodes, and then that can process data and some transaction can occur, some image can be passed. It doesn't work as the internet because it takes like 10 minutes to process <laughs> every block. And so, you know, billions of people can't be transacting with it all at once. But like, you know, it, it holds out the possibility. And I don't know if we're going to get there of like a way the internet could have gone in the past and a way it could go in the future, which is, I think, some of what excites me about like the Web3 stuff is like, I like the idea of communities. Like if we built YouTube now and it was built as a DAO and it was like, everybody owns YouTube together. And in the future, creators will make money off the advertising and every single person who uses this site will make money and will decide the future of the site through voting. You know, if that ever worked, that would be amazing. Will that ever will we ever build a product with like the the capacity and the capability of a YouTube as a massive decentralized organization voting on things? Probably not, but it would be I don't know. Maybe we maybe the wisdom of the crowd could do it. Yeah. I think the problem with everything like this fundamentally is that there's got to be a backbone, right? The internet has DNS servers and massive cables that, you know, shunt all the uh, data around. If you want this decentralized YouTube, somebody has to decide who gets a vote, how votes are distributed. They have to create policy, like what's a violation, and then they have to enforce it. And somebody has to hold the hammer. And it all that runs on top of that the same. Has biases. Right. And all the Ethereum stuff runs off the same DNS and, you know, without the internet, you wouldn't be, the blockchain wouldn't work either. So, and it all runs on people. And that's the ultimate problem. <laughs> I have a question too. <laughs> Earlier, you mentioned like if you really want to be like super decentralized about all this stuff and you don't want to, like, I don't want to use any platform, I don't, I want to do things myself, you would have to essentially know how to code your own smart contracts, which makes me think about how accessible this really is to like non technical people. I don't even like to use that term, but like people who don't know anything about software development. Like I know a lot of people push like the use case of like, oh, you know, like we just talked about a lot of people who can benefit from cryptocurrency when you are in a in a place where for whatever reason your your local currency is not working or you can't make international transactions, whatever, cryptocurrency can be useful. But I'm wondering how accessible it is. And maybe since it seems like a couple of you here have actually had you know, experience making these transactions. Maybe you can tell me if you think a normal person, like a family member you know who has no idea what anything coding-wise is, if they could really like be a part of this in a way that would give them real power as a part of the decentralized system. I think it's our job as tech people to make this kind of stuff accessible. And I think some people have, but it's still early days. We live in a bubble. In our in our tech bubble, it's most accessible to people who are tech, tech adjacent, or have relatives in tech and stuff. And, and for everyone else, they kind of have to figure it out. Yeah. I mean, if you're working with a tech person as an artist, I know this thing, Illuminati, which again, super, they're, the way they're approaching it, I think is, well, it's both. It's it's inclusive. Anybody who's on the internet or on Twitter and you know just wants to be involved and loves NFTs can get involved. But it's also, you know, the whole goal is to build like an exclusive club of NFT holders who then get to go to parties if you hold the NFT, yada, yada. Anyway, the artists themselves don't have to have super technical knowledge, but they have to partner with a technical person. And that without the artists, there's no project. And without the technical person, there's no project. So they kind of complement each other. And you mm. know, you could have both those skills and do it on your own. And I heard an interview the other day with somebody in finance who's created a whole bunch of like, you know, like a Uniswap kind of thing. And they were saying, you know, they started talking about smart contracts and the person asked them like, do you, do you know how to read these? And they're like, are you kidding me? Like, 
I don't know how to read solidity is the name of the Ethereum language. Like I don't have a clue. Like we have coders who do that. My job is to like figure out how to build, you know, financial markets and decide what financial products we should build on this smart contract platform. Yeah. I just wonder how like in a situation like with the if YouTube was remade and it was totally decentralized and like for people to make decisions about what they want to happen with the platform and what they want to happen with their information and their piece of the party, whatever, it seems like they would have to know something semi-technical, semi-technical or coding related. And I wonder if that would cut people off from being part of it. All right, let me give you a hypothetical. You tell me if if you buy this. (laughs) Okay. A group of people form a DAO. And if you can, all you have to do is download an app and set up an Ethereum wallet that you could walk through as a non-technical person and they guide you through it. And you, you know, get $500 worth of Ethereum. And then they say, you know, you're part of this DAO now. We're going to meet in this Discord and talk. We've got a group of five coders. They're going to build this part of the site. We've got a group of five designers. We've got a group of five marketers and we've got a group of five creators. And like, this is the seed, these 20 people. And the way this one is going to work is you can come to the site and just watch videos or you can come to the site and just upload videos. But if you want to join the DAO, you connect your wallet and then any money we make, you know, through advertising as people watch the videos. Oh yeah, we've got a group of five salespeople (laughs) to sell the advertising. Any money you make as a creator goes into your Ethereum wallet. And anybody who leaves a great comment and that, you know, is going to get money in their wallet. Anybody who shares it on Twitter and that leads to a bunch of views, they're going to get money for helping to like boost the views. And so all you really need to do is be a consumer with an Ethereum wallet who helps the community grow and you can get rewarded as like the community grows and the size of it. Then you get to these, these like inflection points where it's like, okay, well now we want to set up a system so that we can censor videos that, you know, are objectionable. Well, who's going to decide what's objectionable and how are we going to set up this? You know, all then it's like it gets complicated. With a DAO, you could vote on it and you know, everybody could pass a vote and it would only pass with a certain, you know, majority. Or you could say, everybody's been getting tokens when they create videos or like videos or share videos. The more tokens you have, the more influence you have on the community. We're going to vote, you know, submit your tokens and we'll decide what the phase two of open tube is, you know. So that's kind of like one of the, that's like the theoretical, hypothetical, ideal, platonic version of what a DAO could do that's different than Web 1.0 is you can work together. Like we, you, we could, all the four of us could create a website and we could talk about how to do it and we could have like a governance board. With the blockchain, financialization and governance can be mediated through an open distributed network that none of us control. And you can vote on things and you can vote on changes And you can move money around without any one of us needing to say, well, I'm the CEO, I sign off on this, or I'm the banker, you know, I sign off on that. So I have a question then. Because, again, gas fees and and crypto things (laughs) costing money. (laughs) Does it cost, I'm just going to ask a series of questions, bang, bang, bang. Does it cost money to create the DAO? Does it cost money to create the content or to create the comments? Does it cost money to delete comments or content? Does it cost money to cost to cast a vote? Is it one of those things where gas fees will cost money, but the actual votes and stuff themselves cost nothing? Right. Great question. So if you have, let's say we create an open, open tube token, right? And that's built on top of the Ethereum, you know, blockchain. That's where things get very complicated is that so many, it's, we're basically at a point where so many people are trying to build on top of the Ethereum network because it was sort of the first one to take off post-Bitcoin that had smart contract capabilities written into it. 
that has become unbelievably congested. And a million people want to do a million things on Ethereum. And so everybody's competing for space to write their smart contracts into each block. And so that's why it costs so much money. If there weren't as many people using it, if it hadn't gotten very popular, then it would cost, like it used to cost, years ago, it cost nothing. It cost one cent to write a transaction to the Ethereum blockchain. And the more it grew in popularity without the underlying infrastructure changing, the more expensive it became. So Solana is like a tier three. So like Bitcoin was tier one. Ethereum was like, let's make some advances and some changes to that. And Solana saw Ethereum and said, all right, well, we're, we're going to do it differently. And on Solana, which is one of the reasons it's grown so fast this year, it's not as congested and it may avoid some of the problems that Ethereum had and be, be a permutation of this idea that can scale better. That's what some people think. And so it is very true that when you start talking about DAOs and minting and this and that, the problem is that, yeah, each exchange there has to be processed over the Ethereum blockchain, and that becomes very slow and expensive. And so you know that is one of the things definitely holding the whole ecosystem back. So potentially with another chain? Yeah, another chain, a new chain. With, yeah. with another, like, first instance, if you use Solana, it wouldn't be as financially... I don't know the word for it, but it wouldn't cost as much, I guess, is the, is the phrase. Now, is that because Solana is not as widely used as Ethereum and Bitcoin? Or is that just like... Yeah, like as it grows, will it cost more? Right. Like, is that like the life cycle for every cryptocurrency? There's two main things. And I'm not an expert in this, but Bitcoin was brilliant in that it had this proof of work. So the reason it's really, really hard to fake money or you know illegally do a transaction is that somewhere somebody has to run some intense hash calculations to, to make the block happen. That's a miner and they get paid to do that. And everybody else benefits by getting to basically write their transactions on each block and, and pass things around. And as Bitcoin grows, it gets harder and harder to do the transactions. And as more and more people want to use it, it gets harder and harder to get space on the block. Ethereum leveled up from Bitcoin by adding smart contracts, but they didn't change the fundamental approach of proof of work. So there are Ethereum miners who get paid and people want to get on the block. And it's become very congested. Solana, I believe, uses proof of stake, which is a different approach than proof of work. And so proof of stake is like a idea that people put up collateral, basically, like you say, like, I want the Solana ecosystem to work. I'm going to take 100 Solana and put them in this pool. And that will be used to certify various transactions. I, I don't know exactly how it works. But essentially, instead of using these like super computationally intensive hashes, you use some kind of collateral. And that supposedly will make it less environmentally destructive because you're not just running supercomputers all the time to mine and potentially more scalable in terms of the velocity, the number of transactions and the cost you know, that you'd have to pay to the miners or the stakers in the future. And Ethereum, and this gets back to governance, the whole like Ethereum collective is essentially arguing now about whether or not they should move from proof of work to proof of stake. And whether or not Ethereum will survive as a blockchain, Cassidy, to your point, if they don't, because it's really not feasible to do like a big distributed project with a million users because there's not enough space on each chain. Like I, I many times I've tried to use an Ethereum wallet, oh, your, your transaction was canceled or sorry, it didn't work or sorry, when you hit send, the transaction cost $50. But by the time we received your signal, it cost $90. And so now you need to try again. You know, it's, it's so borked. I mean, it's like, you know, it's a terrible experience. Is it possible for people to create their own blockchain space? Anybody can create a new blockchain. That's what Solana is. Yeah. So if if there's a DAO that wanted sort of a private space to cast all their votes on the this blockchain, they could 
create their own, right? Yes. But it takes a lot to get a network moving, you know, and to get people to believe in it and to get critical mass. Uh, but to go back to the governance, I'm pretty sure, I haven't been following super closely, that Ethereum has been arguing for a long time about whether or not they should move from proof of work to proof of stake. And because it's open, you know, a CEO can't just be like, well, look, like people are having a terrible experience. We're doing this. Like, yeah. prioritize, already focus. Like, some people disagree, but we're doing this. They've just been going back and forth forever, you know, arguing proof of work, proof of stake. The miners don't want to change. The miners are making money. They hold power. Other people are building on Ethereum. They want to move so that the interest, you know. And so that's one of those areas where open governance kind of falls flat is like it's hard to be quick and nimble when people have conflicting interests within the working group. So this this is the kind of stuff that makes it hard for me to be convinced about like the ideal DAO in like blockchain stuff because it's like that's not how it's panning out at all right now. And I know people are like, oh, we have to just work out the kinks, but I don't know. And then add on top of it, like you did mention how environmentally destructive like the trading of Bitcoin and Ethereum is, I don't know if we have time to wait for us to mm. work out the kinks in addition to the fact that like we're seeing a lot of flaws with the system as it is. So should we really trust that it's going <sighs> to be able to pan out to like how, because believe me, I truly do want things to work out that way. Like I'm not a big tech cheerleader who just loves the fact that they're like selling my data to whoever and profiting off of it and all that kind of stuff. Like I would like for this to work out, but I don't know if that's, actually possible and then like do we really have like yeah the time to like wait for us to iterate enough to like get it right it's going to happen essentially it's like do i want to participate like we you can't put the genie back in the bottle so you can choose to participate and be like this is how i want to build it and i want it to look like this or you can choose to say like i don't think this is going to pan out it's just going to be another worse version of the internet like i'm going to go over here and build mm-hmm. something else you know like we can't turn it off but you can you can choose not to participate or not and that's kind of gets us back to the original where we started, which is like, I feel like a schmuck which cho- have chosen not to participate since 2010 and still have yeah to be paying my mortgage and, and working a job. Why did I make that choice? I still feel like it's early enough where you can still like 10, 20 years from now be like, I was an early adopter. Definitely. Like, I think it's not like something to beat yourself up over. And one thing I think about too is like, you know, as someone who does front end development, like you still need all those skills. It's not like, you know, front end development in the typical front end UI stack is going to change and those things are still needed. So I can still participate anytime if I really wanted to, like I could still get in on it, but I'm just deciding not to now. I think your, your point is really valid. It feels like 1990 was like the beginning of the consumer internet, but it barely worked and nobody knew about it. So let's call that 2010 for Bitcoin. And 1999 was like the height of this crazy bubble and everybody was trying to get in, but actually like e-commerce sucked, like doing transactions <laughs> on the internet sucked, you know, like yeah. And people were like, nobody will ever not shop at a store. Like e-commerce is a joke. You know, it's never going to really pan out. And now obviously, you know, another 20 years later, like it's, it's effortless and everybody does it. So like we're at like the 1999 level of what blockchain technology can do. Mm. I feel like looking back at history, it's like, well, obviously I got to participate now because if I'd gotten in on the internet in 1999, I'd be sitting pretty in 2022. Will it develop into something great? free of horrible people and horrible things? Probably probably not, because it's made up of people. In the end, um, it's people, not, you know, something else. All right, everybody. It is that time of the show. I will read us a lifeboat. Thank you to Alexander Shapkin, awarded three hours ago. Recycle application pool using PowerShell script. All right. Everybody, thank you so much for listening. I am Ben Popper. I'm the director of content here at Stack Overflow. 
Web3 Maximalist, Crypto, Bro in Waiting. You can find me on Twitter <laughs> at Ben Popper. You can always email us, podcast at stackoverflow.com with questions and suggestions. And if you like the show, leave us a rating and a review. It really helps. I am Ryan Donovan, editor of the blog at Stack Overflow and resident cranky old man. I'm on Twitter at rthordonovan. If you have a great idea for a blog post, please email me at pitches at stackoverflow.com. I'm C.R. Ford. I'm a developer advocate at Apollo GraphQL. You can find me on Twitter. I usually occasionally talk about how I'm not convinced about Web3 and crypto. And if you want to hear that kind of stuff, <laughs> check me out there. My username <laughs> there is Cioreo, and that's C-E-E-O-R-E-O underscore. I'm Cassidy Williams. I am head of developer experience and education at Remote. You can find me at Cassidy. What? You can find me at <laughs> Cassidy, C-A-S-S-I-D-O-O on most things. Awesome. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. Be safe out there to keep your NFTs safe. Cold storage or nothing. All right. Bye. 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 Bye.